0: Not much time left. Don't forget that your papers are due next week, if you have a paper, and then on Tuesday of next week, I will also alert you to how to submit your wiki proposals, okay? Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this time, and once again, help us to see that there is no king, true king, ultimate king, but Yahweh but you and your son more, more particularly that no man as talented as he is as brilliant as he may be or as foolish can unify a nation can galvanize the world can be the hero the conqueror the victorious one no one really can hold that in his hand but your son and may that really make our hearts love him more. May that compel us to value who he is and all that he does more because we understand that there is no one like him. There is no one who can compare to him. Anyone who stands to do the task that he has and he own can fulfill will fail so miserably. Um, It is just absolutely shameful, but not your son. And may that vision of him as unparalleled and fully victorious and triumphant in all the tasks that you have assigned for this world, not only our sin, but this whole world, this entire created order to be redeemed. Oh Lord, it has all fallen upon the shoulders of your Son. And may he be exalted alone in our minds. May he be the only hero that we truly value because he is indeed the only hero that this world has ever known. And the most valiant one at that. So may all the glory be to him and as we understand the failings of David even further today, may our hearts have a higher conviction about the glory, the fullness, the majesty, the success of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. We are now in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. (laughs) Chapter 18. Just by way of review, we have these cycles, if you remember, of how the Rebuilt, revolt, Absalom's revolt has played out. And each cycle has a demonstration that David is a failure. You could say, I put up last time a lack of kingship. I just put a failure this time for the sake of uh, variety. But there is a hope for God's loving kindness. Usually, that is because David understands what Yahweh is doing, and he responds to that correctly in some form, some aspect of repentance. Whether that is uh, understanding that Yahweh is the king and he's not, or and that he has to turn, or that Yahweh's cursed him and that he's going to act rightly, and why did this? Whatever it may be, this is what happens. And then finally, God's loving kindness is unveiled. So that even though David's house looks like the house of Saul, even though David's house looks like the same, to be in the same situation that Saul was in so many years ago at the beginning of the book of 2 Samuel, it's not the same way. And that reiterates the exact promise that God gives in 2 Samuel 7. My loving kindness will not depart with you as it did with the house of Saul. David, you may look like the house of Saul, but the difference is God's loving kindness wins out. And so we have this really great tension, and it's a tension that's held together by points one and three. David as a human failure, but God as a faithful king, and that produces one thing, that produces hope. And if you can really grasp this tension that's developing throughout the entire book, then you understand, you'll you be able to understand the ending, because what we see is points one and three clearly laid out, uh, starting from approximately chapter 13 all the way through chapter 20, and then what do you think the last part of the book is going to be about? The hope. Does that make sense to everybody? So that's next week. We're going to cover that. But right now, we just need to see how terrible David is. really is. And... I want to reiterate just because, I'm trying to think a little bit, big picture. Why does 2 Samuel go through such great depths to tell you that David is terrible, that David is bad, that he's a loser? Because even the Jewish people, as well as the Sunday school people, believe that he's awesome. Does that make sense to everybody? And, and they have that expectation. I mean, in Sunday school, I mean, people just kind of stumble around this whole Absalom deal, and Absalom's such a bad guy, and this is all Absalom's fault. When, who who caused all this? David. David started all this. <clears throat> David has this decree about the sword will not leave your house and somebody else will sweep your wives. You just omit that in Sunday school. And they omit these kinds of things with, um, you know, in... In Jewish thought. David is a good guy. He's always a good guy. And that goodness is upheld throughout scripture, but 2 Samuel is trying to show something. He's not the good guy. He might be a good guy relatively, but he's certainly not the right guy. And you're looking for somebody else. And just to show, David can't do the job. You think David's a good guy. He is a good guy. He's better than everybody else, but he can't do the job. He can't do the job. That's reiterated over and over and over again, and that's why it emphasizes his failure. And that, with the tension of God's loving kindness, produces the hope. If you don't understand that David, in, by presupposition, is a good guy, then you don't understand why there's actually real tension. Does that make sense, to everybody? You look as if David's your savior, but he can't be. So you got to find what a new David. See how that starts to all work in redemptive history? Okay, good. So here is where he becomes even more a loser. First time he's a loser because he says, Okay, Absalom has just taken over. He started a coup. Let's run, which is totally idiotic. It's the first time, like I said other times, that David has ever advised to run from battle. David's always been the one to lead into battle. This is the first time he's ever said, "Let's retreat." It is the f- most foolish move possible. And then, on top of that, you know, David is talking to Ziba. Remember that? And Ziba tricks him, which, which wasn't really a trick. You could just totally read through what Ziba was saying, like, "Oh, the kingdom's going to come back to Mephibosheth, to the lame man." Like, are you serious? Uh, and and David just says, "Oh, I guess so." Well, you get everything. See, but you get everything. He cannot make right decisions. He cannot understand the military. He doesn't understand domestic affairs. And now, this kind of like merges together in the all-time dumb move. So he numbers the people. Oh, oh, and this is something that has to play in the background too. Remember what David has said. Uh, Shimi is cursing David. Remember that as he's walking along and throwing stones at him, trying to stone David to death. And that's the only, that's the only thing you do with stones, right? You stone them to death. It's just like you drown to death in a pool. Well, that's you don't drown unless you're dead. Okay. Anyway, but the uh, I just had to get that out there. So the 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 problem is is that here's this motif. I'm under curse. Maybe God can what turn it around. Remember that? And at this point, we've seen, because of God's loving kindness, he can turn it around. He gets Hushai in there. Everyone remember this? He, and, and all that brilliant maneuvering there. And so now, it's all turning around. And so originally, David is under curse and Absalom, I'll just draw him with long hair, is under blessing. What's going to happen? Switch. So Absalom will be under curse and David will be under blessing. Everyone with me? Good. That has to be in the background of your mind. So you could write that down in context, no review or whatever you want to do with that. David numbers the people. Blessing has come. David doesn't know that, but it has. And now David's going to make the next mistake. David numbers the people who are with him, sets commanders over thousands, commanders over hundreds. Any problem with military organization? Nah, that's okay. That's fine. What's the question everyone's going to ask? What, what question should you be asking now? Knowing what you know, what's the word you're going to look for? The one word? Send. Is David going to What? Send them, or is he going to what? Go with them, right? That's the question. Because every time David sends, it it, it ends in catastrophe. So you are thinking, maybe he's got to send them out. He can't if he sends the people out, we're dead. And what does he do? He sends, and you are just like, I don't believe this. I seriously. Don't believe this. He sends the people out, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, one-third under the command of Etai. Not only does he send, which kind of makes you uneasy, right? Because every time he sent before, right? He sent messengers. He sends the armies. He sends for Bathsheba. He sends, you know, for Uriah. he He sends, he sends, he sends, he sends, he sends. It ends up bad, this could end up similarly bad, but there's something on top of that, but I'll get to that after I answer this question. I'm a, of the idea of him having to go to war um, with his people, and where is that idea established? Because I remember that Israel wanted a king that would like, fight their battles for them, mm-hmm. um, but like, as far as like, Deuteronomy goes, it, that wasn't commanded. No, it wasn't, but I think it was a legitimate expectation and that God was going to provide a king to do that. And that's what merits David, for example, in 2 Samuel 5. So it is highly legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting here? You divide up the, na- the country, the army into thirds, and you put them what? Under different leaders. Under different leaders. But who's, who's the general of the entire army? Joab. So this is a sleight of hand. Right? David doesn't trust Joab. He doesn't want him to have command over the entire military. Which kind of raises a question. Well, if if Joab doesn't have control over the entire military, then who's going to be able to oversee the entire battle? Right? Doesn't that make sense? you got to have somebody in central command. You can't just have Joab in one part of the field, not knowing what's going on in the other parts of the field, and thinking that he can do all that. David intentionally splits up the authority structure because he doesn't want Joab to have power. Why? Because Joab's been disagreeing with him a lot lately. Exactly. And so he pushes him aside, gets some to the other brother, who he also doesn't trust. Remember Abishai? What does he say? Let's cut off the guy's head. And Japheth like, are you crazy? We're not doing that. So he splits it off to him. And then he splits it off to a guy who he knows is loyal. Etai is loyal. Very clearly loyal. That's why he marches off with him. This is another folly. He sends, he divides the army contrary to what's probably best for it. But here's the catch. And the king said what? I'll go with you guys. (laughs) Now, um, this is obviously the natural solution. Who's going to be the commander-in-chief? Who's going to be in central command? It's not Joab. It's going to be the what? The king. And is that good or bad? Good. That's what you would want to say, wouldn't it be? Because everything in the text before this says, when the king doesn't go out with the people, it's a disaster. But here, I would argue to you, it's actually reversed. Why does David want to go out in battle? Why does he put Joab away from the main command? Why does he do all this? Why does he act contrary to his original intentions? Why? He wants Absalom to live. He, wants Absalom to live. he is going to insert himself into the battle so that Absalom will stay alive. Now, what did Ahithophel say? What did Ahithophel counsel? You have to surgically strike. You have to kill David. Right? That's the only way you're going to end this conflict. You've got to go after the leader. So what's David's strategy? And what is he trying to enforce by inserting himself as central command? Either he's going to die instead of Absalom, or he's going to kill all the Israelites instead of Absalom... See how this works? Or he's going to have all his forces die instead of Absalom. Do you see that? Because the simplest way to end the battle, the most militarily logical way to end the battle is to kill the leader. But David is proposing a strategy to end the battle without killing the leader. Do you see the problem? Do you see the issue? And guess who picks up on this? Everybody. What does the next verse say? But the men said. Not just Joab. Joab doesn't even have to open his mouth. It's the entire army going, no, 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 no. We're not going down that road. You shall not go out. For indeed, if we indeed flee, they won't care about us. They'll care about you. And David's thinking what? Precisely. And the people are thinking, precisely not. You are worth more than 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you be ready to help us from the city. David, you're too valuable of a target. You see, most of us will interpret this to mean, or most of us, I think, traditionally take this to mean what? David, the people really care about David. That's true, they do. But you have to take them literally. David's strategy is inherently foolish. Does, everyone, does that make sense to you all? It's, it's not just like David's being pious. I'm going to go fight with you. They know what's going on. you see why David is foolish here? He's not acting like a real king. Let's put it this way. The times when he's supposed to go out with the army, he doesn't go. And the times when he's not supposed to go with the army, he what? Tries to go. He does everything wrong. Everything wrong. He rather, what will become very evident toward the end, is that he rather sacrifice himself, his army, whatever, and let his son live. That is an absolute travesty. This guy can't be a king, he doesn't understand how to lead. Okay, and this will come to a head in a dialogue between Joab and David. Yeah. I guess I don't see how that would play out in like in the battle situ like battle situation. Just like how like sense. Well, David. Let's say David was central command. He's overseeing the battle from like a hilltop or something like that, right? And he's over the forest, and he sees Absalom running, right, for his life. What's David gonna do? Pull the army. Away from Absalom. But as long as Absalom runs, the battle continues. So every moment that he delays in killing Absalom, that means Israelite soldiers on both sides are going to die. But David can do that because he's central command. And to even more thoroughly answer your question, Chad, <coughs> I'll answer it in one second. Because we still have verse 4. So here's what David says. Oh, yeah, huh? Is there any symbolism here between. Um, God not killing us right away for our sin and David not wanting to kill his son right away for his sin? Not really. Yeah. I mean, you could draw like a parallel, but David's obviously not trying to kill his son kind of to the detriment of everybody else and foolishly. And God's really doing the opposite with us because it is in the end for his glory. So they're kind of different situations, even if you wanted to make an analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, verse 4. What does David do? What does the king do? This is funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's funny. Whatever seems best to you. <laughs> it's like, okay, who's the king, right? Who, who, who is the king? You're supposed to know what's best and, you're not, and I don't just do whatever you want me to do. By the way, this has a ring to it of there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's just back to square one, or square zero, or a negative square. Whatever you want to think about it, this is just a complete retrograde. And so the king stood behind the, beside the gate. All the people go out, and the king charges all three of the commanders. And all the people hear this, What? What? Don't? Don't kill Absalon. Deal gently. Actually, it's not even don't kill. It's deal gently with him. Treat him real nice. That would be like, take out Saddam Hussein nicely. It's like, but don't kill him. And make sure you treat him real well. What? Like, how, how do you expect us to do that? Win the Super Bowl, but don't score. <laughs> it's like uh okay yeah it is but he has to do that because he knows what happens if you put Joab in charge he'll, kill Absalom. he'll kill Absalom what happens if you put Abishai in charge he'll kill Absalom and then you're like oh why doesn't he put Etai the Gittite really easy because you'll lose the entire army you're putting a foreigner in charge of all your troops <laughs> <laughs> You're at a total loss here. There's nothing you can do. <laughs> so it's better to split the army up and have them take extra casualties because of, a, because of disunity in the ranks and because of a lack of communication in the ranks than it is to actually get the job done. And on top of that, to throw everything off in the mix, what is he yelling at the top of his lungs so every, all the army can hear? Don't lay a hand on Absalom. Now, how is that going to help the mission? You know, Joab is probably telling you, don't listen to the king. This is, that's suicide, right? That's suicide. You do that, we're all going to die. And the king is screaming at the top of the wall, contradicting, contradicting, excuse me, Job, don't touch Absalom. Do you, see, do, you see, do you see the problem here? This is absolute foolishness. Yeah, yeah. there have been times like Yeah, and the only problem is, right, I mean, forget about, like, lack of intelligence or something like that that could cause decisions to go awry. David's, you don't need any intelligence to figure this out, right? I mean, you already got Ahithophel, who's now dead, telling you this is what you have to do, and his counsel's like, the what? The word of God. You know what you have to do, but David says, don't do it. Do you understand? David is a failure, And we shouldn't say this arrogantly. Once again, I want to stress that. Don't say it like, oh, I'm better than David. I I could have figured this one out. No. Maybe you could have, but that doesn't make you better than David. David's not the real king. You might think he's the best one, but he's not the right one. Can't be. You make a mistake like this, uh uh-uh, you're not the best one. And he's about to put the entire operation in jeopardy. Unless what? God's loving kindness wins out. See that? See, the reason you need God's loving kindness is, well, okay, were it not for God at this moment, what would happen? If everyone obeyed David's orders, Joab just acquiesces for some funny reason, what happens? They can't kill Absalom. Therefore, they're in the wilderness, they're outnumbered, and what's going to happen to everybody? They'll die. Because the war will never stop. And then David, what? Loses his kingship and redemptive history is over. See that's what happens. Were it not for God. Okay, yeah. How does David go from uh, being such like a mighty man and knowing how to do all this stuff militarily like before like before he was king and even at one point, you know, he he was in Saul's camp and he had a chance to to kill him, like knowing like how to do all that and knowing how to lead like his men to all of a sudden like now like have no idea what to do. Sin. You see, um, it's kind of like this. I've never seen this movie. I've only read about it on Wikipedia. but So I could be totally wrong. It's the movie Hitch. Have you heard of this movie? I think it has uh, Will Smith or something. Mm-hmm. Somebody in the, Yeah. So, and and he... Right? It doesn't have him in there. It's like that'd be really embarrassing, you know. But uh, he—he's supposed to be a guru about how to, you know, get people together, matchmaker, right? And then he falls in love, and everything he does goes wrong. Everyone understand this? Here's David. He is the military genius. Everyone knows it. That's why he's king. And then sin enters his life. And there's something, someone he loves, irrationally, right? Why, do, why does Absalom always get away with murder, even? It's because David loves this son, but he can't accept him, but he loves him. So God just exploits that weakness to, the, to its end. And here's David's love for his son, <coughs> and God knows it, but God's raised up this one so close to him to go against him. And David has lost all ability to do that. But how did Absalom get there in the first place? Because of sin. Because David's sin opened the window, we've been through this, that Amnon used to manipulate the situation which provided the opportunity for Absalom and everything goes on from there. And God said, you sin, you become dumb. You become foolish. And that's exactly what happens. So, already you start to see the need, what? For a king who doesn't, sin, who will always be wise and right and true and righteous. You need that king. If you don't have him, it will just be a total debacle. So, that's, that's what's going on here. And here David is totally foolish, just really foolish. And he's put the whole thing in jeopardy, but God's loving kindness has to win out. Yes? If to one of Uh, One of who has to die. Yeah, David's not that dumb. Yeah, he knows. Ahithophel's already said so. Everybody knows that, and David is just trying to force the opposite irrationally. I mean, that's why David runs, because he knows if he acts immediately, Absalom's dead. So he runs. He does the foolish thing, and and all his strategy is really not about his own survival, but about Absalom, which doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Um, is there... It seems like he's kind of set himself up for whatever decision he makes is in the wrong. Uh, is there a right decision here? Just Like, is it just go into Absalom? The right decision would have been from the very beginning when you heard Absalom now rebelled, assemble the troops, we go south, we take them out now. Right, you see that in his life though where he would do all these... Wrong things he gets to the point where he has no options. Right. But he does have an option here, and that's, that's the right option. Yeah. Okay. But he doesn't even take that right option, so that forces more wrong options, uh, as we will now see in the next page. Uh huh. Doesn't he know that Absalom has to die? Like, four of his sons are going to die. Does he? Yeah, he gets it. So why is he trying to go against what? I can't ex- justify this guy to you. <laughs> Sin. Sin makes you dumb. You know, or whatever, however you want to put it. I mean, uh, you're like asking me to defend the guy that I just spent the entire semester tearing down. <laughs> Give me a break. You can't have it both ways. You know, I can't keep David alive and shoot him dead. You know? <laughs> I mean, come on, give me a break here. All right. Next page. Blessing to curse. Blessing to curse. Blessing to curse. Absalom has... It's all been reversed now, and so Absalom is what? Cursed. Absalom is now cursed. And so the people went out into the field against Israel. The battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Their, um the people were soundly defeated before the servants of David. <clears throat> this is fascinating wording because it re- resembles what wording? What does it resemble? You should just like uh, I don't know, verse 6, 7. What is the what does the wording resemble? people of Israel versus servants of David <coughs> beaten before, all this kind of stuff, what does it resemble? Something that happened at the beginning of the book. Yes. In 2 Samuel 2.15 Abner and the house of Saul are fighting against David and his servants. And there, the wording is almost identical. The people of Israel were defeated, were beaten before the servants of David. Now, let's make the parallels right and get to the theological conclusion. David versus Saul. Servants of David, S-O-D, versus uh, people of Israel, Yes? Something like that. Now we have what? Still David versus who? Absalom. And Absalom now has become like the house of Saul. Everything's been turned around. Originally, who looked like the house of Saul every single time? David. He runs the Makhanaim, house of Saul. He has all these problems, house of Saul. He looks like he's in retreat, house of Saul. Now what? Everything's been turned around. David's no longer like the house of Saul. Absalom's like the house of Saul. Which means what? God's loving kindness has remained with David and redeemed him from being like the house of Saul. Therefore, curse has also there been transformed into blessing for David, and now the curse falls against Absalom. The slaughter of that day was great. 20,000 men, way more than what was before and actually, here's the funny thing. How did the, most of the people die? The forest. No, it's not the trees that are alive, okay? It's just, it's like people are running around and they slip and fall and, and they fall in a ravine and they die or they get caught up in a tree and hang and, and die or they run into a tree branch and then they die. What, whatever it might be. You know, things get intense in, in, in the battlefield. And what does that testify? It wasn't by the hand of man. It was by the hand of God. Once again, just David. If you didn't get the drift, the reason you're saved is not because sold, the soldiers are executing perfect military strategy. What is their military strategy, according to David? Foolish military strategy. So what does God do? Well, I can't use the soldiers. I'll use the force. And he, and he uses the force and, and gets this going. And here's the case in point. Here's Absalom. Absalom. He happens to meet the servants of David. And because Absalom's riding on a donkey. Now, this is strange uh, for a couple of reasons. And there are a couple of explanations, and maybe all of them play into one to another. Why is it strange to be riding a donkey into war? That's That's like driving a Bentley into battle, right? I mean, you don't you just don't do that kind of stuff. It's like, "Well, okay, my new never mind." Uh so, you know, it, you know, and then they blow the guy up. I mean This just reminds me of a quick joke. This has nothing to do with this class. But <laughs> but there's this there's this this is comic relief. The the Fraser gives me this or show tells me about this comic strip of you know, there's this star up in the heavens like you know, wise men falling to star kind of thing, and then there, there's these dead camels in a crater with smoke coming out, and there's a tank, and and it says, "Wanderers in the wilderness chasing a a foreign object, Israel had to destroy them, right? Because you know, it's an allusion back to the to the whole thing. It's like, what? You know. Anyway, but that's what would happen if you just did this in battle. It would, maybe it only makes it's funny to Israeli people, but anyway, just. And to me who's lived there for a long time like that would definitely happen like camel bombers you know like what's going on Uh, anyway but the the whole point is here you don't ride a mule into battle any more than you would drive a Bentley into war you know like what are you doing with that thing on the battlefield that doesn't make any sense you ride a what into battle a horse so that raises two issues Oh, you also know why you don't ride a mule into battle? Because unlike a horse, mules kind of—I mean—they can go relatively fast, but they're kind of just unwieldy animals. And you're now elevated above everybody. Do you see that? So it's like, dude, you're just a—you're just a mulling a target. You know that—that that doesn't move fast enough or furious enough to do anything. So why did—why did—so. <laughs> What could be the problem? David, what, to the horses? David does what to the horses? Hamstrings all the horses, right? So they're no longer good for military use. So what could Absalom have done? He could have joined the battle on foot, but he chooses to go on, on what? Mule because, because he'll look good. Yeah, he'll definitely look, that's for sure. He'll be very apparent from anyone. This is vanity. Once again, no matter how you slice and dice this, whether it's like, well, he doesn't have a horse, so he has to ride a mule. Look, if you don't have a horse, don't ride. You know, don't, just, just, just be normal. But he can't do that. He's got to look like a king and kings ride. Even if it's on a mule, it doesn't matter. So he's on this mule and he meets David's servants and he flees. And that gives him just enough height so that what? He gets caught in the tree. Isn't that providential? God creates a tree that has a branch just the right height such that Absalom riding the mule as opposed to not riding a mule or riding a horse. See, by the way, uh, notice the wording of this text even though Josephus gives us some later details but it says here that he's caught by his what? Head. Right? Read the text. Caught by his rosh, head. Not by his hair. Now, you're like, oh, but was he comp-? It could have been. I think that would be extra funny. But, uh, but the text emphasizes his head. Why? Perfect height. See, right now, all we know is providence. You're not seeing God's active hand. You're, you're, no, I shouldn't have put it that way. You are seeing God's active hand, but it's hidden. Why did the forest kill more people? God. Why, why, why are the soldiers winning? God. Why does Absalom, running away from the donkey, on a mule, everyone's chasing him, but no one's touching him. Why does, he, why does his head get caught in a tree? God. See how that works? It's always God. God sets the tree branch, it's at the right, it's at the perfect height to lodge right under his head. And it catches him. Could it have been his hair? Sure. But you understand why the word head is. It's actually not a contradiction, right? Because part of your head has hair on it, so it's okay. And now, <laughs> the mule, because it's not intelligent, continues to go, and he's left hanging between heaven and earth. Uh huh. So Josephus? Josephus, yeah. Josephus. And it could be totally accurate, by the way. It could have historically happened that way. Uh, they're not in contradiction, but this does say head. <coughs> and so now Absalom is what? What does the text say? Hanging. hanging. Fascinating word. Illusion. Cursed is the man who hangs on the tree. God executes his own death sentence against Absalom. And that shows what? We now know for sure curse has been turned into blessing for David and now curse has gone onto Absalom. He's hanging between heaven and earth. A certain man goes and tells Joab about it. And Joab expresses surprise that the man didn't what? Kill Absalom. You got to get rid of this guy. I would have given you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. A lot of cash, by the way. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. Save that comment for like the next page. Okay? Because that's going to that's gonna play real important. It's actually pretty funny. Um, so say that, say that again when we get to the next page. Okay. okay. <coughs> All right. No, but you're right. You're right. But that's not the reason that this man has in his mind. It's the reason that Joab has in his mind for something that happens later. But this man has in his mind, what? David commanded us not to. You see, everyone is following David's ridiculous strategy, right? Except for Joab. Trump's like, we got to get rid of this guy. we got to eliminate this guy. And, and now, Joab and this man become foil of each other. Does that make sense? They become two men in contrast. The man tries to acknowledge his loyalty to David. Joab says, that's a foolish thing to do. You should not do that. And Joab shows, here, here, here's what he does. What, Joab contradicts all this man's intentions to preserve David's request, and Joab says, We're not doing that. It's very clear Joab is against David here. Everyone with me on that? And so, what does Joab do? He plays darts with Absalom, like using Absalom as the dartboard. Uh, the idea of taking spears are like the, the word in Hebrew has the idea of like a dart. Not the dinky things you throw, but like a bigger kind of throwing object. And he plays darts. And so do all his young men with him. All his armor bearers do. And they execute Joab. Or they ex- execute, excuse me, Absalom. <clears throat> and they thrust them. They throw them and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he's hanging. And thus justice has begun to be served. And notice what ends the rebellion In verse 16, what is it? When Absalom dies, Joab blows the horn and the rebellion and everything else stops. Just like Ahithophel postulated. Right? And here's the lesson. Here's God's loving kindness. Sometimes God raises up a person to contradict what you say to save you from yourself. See that? And that's what God has done through Joab for David. And here's something providential to think about. If (coughs) Joab didn't already have such a long history with David, of David making all these foolish mistakes that Joab has to redeem him from, do you think Joab would have had the guts to do what he did here? No. But now he does. And so God turned the evil into something good that would save the Davidic dynasty. It's, yeah. Because okay, so, Absalom like hung, so, like he hung himself in the sun, and then God hung him, but like, Jonah didn't have to spear him, right? Like that was Well, he's hanging there and it's not the same way that like you're hanging. Um, oh, so he didn't, he wasn't like. He was hanging but he probably wasn't suffocating to death Uh, like you do in a normal hanging when you're suspended. He's just suspended there and he's just going to stay there until somebody unhooks him. So Joab's like, well, let's just get this over with and uh, (laughs) pins him down. But he leaves him hanging on the tree, I think, as a symbolic gesture. This man is cursed. And let me just finish this off because Joab blows the trumpet. The rebellion's over. But the rest of justice must be done. Remember, the command in Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, is not just about, hey, execute this guy. It's also what? Bury him. Bury him. You have to bury him the same day. And so what does, what does Joab do? They take Absalom, they cast him into a pit, and they erect over him a great heap of stones. See that? Anyone know what that's very much similar to? Uh no, not Ebenezer. When David put those guys that killed the other guy on um, the Yeah, Rachim There's a similarity there, but there's something even more and it's a little more poignant. It's not even in the book of Samuel, so if you don't know, it's it's not like a terrible, terrible thing. No, no. Here, what hang the man? Pale the man. A? That's a good uh, guess. <laughs> king of I. The king of I had the identical punishment because Deuteronomy 21 22 through 23 is predominantly targeted against leadership. Is predominantly targeted against leadership. And therefore <coughs> here you have the here you have <coughs> Absalom trying to be a what? Trying to be a king, and the only way he resembles a king is that what? The way he dies. His execution. Does that make sense? You can see the irony there. And there is this heap of stones that celebrates that this man was cursed. <clears throat> and that stands in contrast to another monument that set up, that Absalom had set up for himself <clears throat> in, in the King's Valley. Because he said he had no son to preserve his name. So you have two monuments, and one says, hey, look, I'm the man, that's what Absalom thinks, and the other one is a testimony. No, God is always loyal, not to people who look mighty, but to his promises to David. Do you see the contrast there? God's loving kindness wins out. Does this make sense to everybody? Do you see the contrast there? All right, good. Next page. Uh Uh-huh. 21, 22 through 23. Next page. We're not done yet with this cycle. We have one more left. Kind of. It actually just ends on failure. We've failed. We've had hope. We have loving kindness. We just finished that. Now we go back to failure. And here it is. Here it is. Achimaaz, the son of Zadok, says, uh, Let me run and give this good news to the king good news, by the way, is the word for basar. It's actually the Hebrew equivalent to euangelion. The good news. Like, the good news of the gospel. This is victory. This is conquest. This is freedom. This is supposed to be good news. And Joab says, you ain't carrying this news. And so, he says, what? I'm going to get a Cushite to do it. And this is where it comes, where what uh, Mr. Wright has said comes into play. Say it again. Yeah, messengers with bad news, which they think is good news, right? And so Joab's sitting here, listening to him. I was, oh, I got some good news. And Joab's like, no, you don't, buddy. Really, you don't. Uh, Cushite, we don't really need you. You're a foreigner. Come on over, and we're going to send you. Does that make sense to everybody? Basically, Joab is sending a fall guy to to get whacked by David. (laughs) (laughs) And he's trying to save what? Ahimaaz's life. Does that make sense to everybody? I mean, this is is what's going on here. Okay. But there's something more aside from that historical point. But it's still there. Ahimaaz is a foil to David. Ahimaaz in this story is a foil to David. Everyone remember what a foil is? Compare and contrast. Ahimaaz understands and sees God's providence in this situation and rightly understands what God has done. He's overjoyed. He's exuberant about God's loving kindness to the Davidic dynasty. And we see that. he tried, Look, Joab is Ahimaaz's what? Commander, technically. He's a superior. And here he's, run, he's breaking military protocol to beg Joab to send him. But he thinks this is such good news and he wants to be the bringer of it that he's going to do it. And he's going to run whether Joab sends the Cushite or not. Does that make sense to everybody? He's determined because he believes that this is good. And he runs so fast, he passes the Cushite. Who has a head start? This is the picture of somebody who really understands what God's loving kindness has done. Right? So excited. It goes into his speech, his social conduct, even his physical actions. Now, this is interesting. David's sitting at the gate. This is where the contrast comes in. And he sends a messenger to the... Or he sends a watchman to the roof. Now, good or bad? Bad. Everything now is bad. Yeah, of course. Uh... (coughs) Why is it bad? Roof's bad? Roof is bad, but David's not on the roof. His watchman's on the roof. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, something like, you know that's, what, that's what we should think. We're thinking, at least he avoided the roof, right? I mean, that roof is like the source <laughs> of all problems. Just like when we were hoping David would go with his troops, right? Because that was the source of all problems. But now everything's reversed again. What should he have been doing? Watching from the roof. Because he cares about his troops. And so, when he's supposed to be on the roof, he's not on the roof. And when he's not supposed to be on the roof, he is on the roof. This is the entire problem. This guy cannot do what's right. Yes, sir. Joab lets him go because in the end um, he knows he can't stop him. It's a concession. Well, like, why does he really want to go? Achimaaz wants to go because he thinks this is really good. The key word is the first word. Good news. He really believes this is the best news. This is the best outcome. And he's naive because he doesn't under... Well, he's right actually but he's naive to think that David's going to think the same thing. <clears throat> and here's David, totally in the wrong place, but at the right time. And the watchman says, there is a man running by himself. Who's the first man that runs? Uh-uh. Because the Cushite has already been passed by. Achimaz. So, he sees Achimaz sprinting toward them and David says, oh, this is what? Hey, this is good news. One man by himself is good news. And doesn't that make sense? Because if you... if." David had lost the battle, what would you see? A whole army in scattered form running back. Does that make sense? So he thinks, good news. But then what's really strange is what? Another one comes. And David still thinks it's what? Good news. And most commentators, and I kind of agree with them, say, well, this probably just confirms it, right? Because it's not packs of people. It's just like, Okay, you send a couple messengers, maybe one from the Joab camp, one from another person's camp, and they're all coming, right? But it's still kind of what? Weird, right? And remember what I talked about before with discordance? Remember that? It's here. Because you're almost tempted to say there's a contrast between these two, right? You don't go there, but you're tempted to say it. You're tempted to say, well, okay, if, we, they, if, we're, if, if the guy's by himself, then we won the battle, then that's what? Good news. But if he's running with another guy, then we, probably, we could have what? Lost the battle, and that's what? Good news. And you're just thinking, oh no, David, don't, don't do this. Right? Don't don't do this, and you already know what David does, right? So that already corrupts your mind a little bit, right? Because what's really good news to David? Absalom's alive, and you're all dead, and so already you're just thinking, "Oh no, I don't believe this." Don't don't go down that road. And to everyone, I think, and at this point in the narrative, we don't have total reason to go down the bad road, but there's discordance, right? And there's nervousness that should be arising. And so, and that's kind of confirmed when Achimaaz comes and says, that's a good man with good news. Whatever this guy's going to tell me, it's going to be good. So verse 28, Achimaaz calls out to the king one word, actually, shalom, peace. Everything is peaceful. That's what he says. Everything is peaceful. (coughs) And here is what he does. What's the next thing he does? It's very interesting. Falls on his face. On his face. We're back to what? This again. Bowing. But this time it's what? For real. For real. And the question is, can David discern true loyalty? Right? He can't discern false loyalty. Remember? Uh, the guys prostrate, Joab prostrates himself, Absalom prostrates himself, and Ziba says, I, I prostrate myself and doesn't even do it. He just says it. And David's like, oh, you guys must be super loyal to me. All right. And now this guy actually really does it. See that? He really does it. Can David even understand what's going on? Does this even make sense to David? (coughs) And now um, he says, Achimaaz gives the true interpretation of the event and says, Blessed is the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who have lifted their hands against my Lord the King. He has judged those men. David, God, loving kindness, he's done such great things for you. Right? There's Achimaaz's true understanding, correct understanding of what God has been doing in this text. But what, is Dave, what does David say? Ask is it well? Is it well? And here, remember, what did I say? The word that Achimaaz says to David? Shalom. And what does David say? Shalom with Absalom? Do you see the play there? Achimaaz says, it's peaceful. And David says, it's not peaceful unless it's what? I'm only concerned not about the nation's peace, not about everybody's peace. I'm only concerned about what? Peace with Absalom. And you start to see what? The contrast. Achimaaz sees Yahweh, sees what God does, sees it for the sake of the nation, and David doesn't see it that way because all he's thinking about is what? His son. The contrast could not be any more clear. This is not your king. This cannot be your king. He fails again. And Achimaaz is shocked. You can't see it in English, but I can in Hebrew. Because he uses all these constructions that don't. He mixes up his wording. It's all cleared up for you in the English translation. But he talks like this uh, I saw a great uh, I saw a tumult, great tumult. And when I was sending from the king to you. He's nervous. Because he, he wasn't expecting David to ask him this question. Like I said, he was naive. And so he kind of lies. I think he's deceitful at bare minimum, (coughs) and he's totally thrown off guard. This was not expected. And the king said, "Get up, stand aside." And you're like, "Oh no, he's not going to kill this guy," but he doesn't (coughs) because the kushite arrives, and the kushite tells it David straight. Tells it to David straight your son is dead. He still says it in a very clever manner, and ironically, what does he say? The same thing as chimaaz. So basically, what is the text now putting, as in contrast to David, are what? chimaaz and a kushite? Even a foreigner gets this better than you, David. Even, a, even an Egyptian understands about, more about God and what he's doing at this moment than you do let the enemies of my lord the king all who rise up against you for evil be like this man this is what you want god god is on your side what are you doing david and here's what david does oh by the way i think i omitted this verse from your like pages of documents so you'll have to like look at your bible and and key this in the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate it's funny I mean, it's not funny, but it is funny. The word for deeply moved is ragaz in Hebrew. It denotes a shaking. That's what it literally denotes. Shaking, like when you shake in anger. David's, I, I guess you could say he's deeply moved. That's kind of a nice way to put it in English. What is he? He's, ups, he's not even upset. He's irate. Okay. They just saved your life and you got what? mad about it. Do you see how crazy this is? And then on top of that, just, just to, I think, make us chuckle a little bit, he goes where? He goes up to the roof chamber. <laughs> it's like David. When you're not supposed to be there, you are there. And when you were supposed to be there, you're not there. And now you're not supposed to be there and you're there. Goodness gracious. And he weeps. You see, here's here's why the roof is such a terrible place. Because the roof, why do you stand on a roof? To see everybody and so that everybody sees you. And so now he's made a public display. And he he just says, my son, over and over and over again, Absalom. And here's his wish. Would I have died in your place? Do you know what that's saying? That's saying, I wish we had lost the battle. And that starts to confirm all the dissonance and the discordance that we've had before, doesn't it? What's really good news to this guy? Well, it ain't what Ahimaaz thought was good news. It ain't what God thought was good news. It runs totally contrary to all this. So then we have another foil that arises. Joab Versus David. And this becomes the key. This becomes the key. It was told to Joab Behold, the king is weeping and he's mourning for Absalom. And what happens as a direct result of this is that the victory, it's crazy, this word for victory is salvation. I mean, I just... I, when I first read that in Hebrew, I was just so taken aback because it's such a strong word. It, I mean, this is, this is not just like, hey, we won. Like, it was good. This is the word for like God's delivering power and something that you rejoice over. I mean, it's a very evocative term. It's not just victory, it's salvation. The salvation that occurred that day was turned into Mourning. David had destroyed everything Yahweh had done. For the people heard that day that, they, that the king grieved for his son. And so the people stealthily moved away from the city as people stealthily move away from battle. Illusion? No, no, no. There's a textual illusion here. It's in 2 Samuel. Hint. There's a hint of it already on the board. When David fled. Not when David fled. When Saul fled. When, remember, after that battle that we talked about before, when David beat Saul, hit Abner and Saul's men, they run away all night under the cover of darkness to get away. David has made his people like the kingdom of Saul. It's like, David, God just delivered you from being like Saul. And then David's like, let's just go right back there. This guy cannot be the king. You know, God's loving kindness prevents David's house from being like Saul. But David's failure makes his kingdom like Saul's kingdom. They're humiliated like when troops steal away from battle. It's a terrible thing. And so the king continues to cry. And so Joab comes into the house to the king. Oh, oh, that's interesting wording. That's much better wording than I thought other English translations had done. It literally says, Joab comes to the king, the house. Why? It doesn't say the house of the king. It doesn't say to the house, to the king. It says, to the king, the house. Why? No, there's a the house of David, but you're, you're thinking along the right lines here. How is it written? How is it written? Uh, let me give you a different kind of translation. David Joab comes to David or Joab comes to the king who is the house David's not king anymore. Uh, no David's still king what's the house in allusion to mm. house of David of course and so the Davidic covenant, right? in the Davidic kingdom. The narrator is cleverly showing this statement is not just about David. This statement is about the, the, entire cov- the entire covenant and the entire dynasty. And this is the confrontation. You are not a king. And now what Absalom pulls out in this eloquent speech shows why sin has corrupted the house, the entire dynasty. You are not a king. Here's the mixed up kingship. Why? Here's what you've done. What is a king supposed to do? Bring glory to the nation and to God. And what has David brought? Shame. You've done exactly what a king should not do. You turn salvation into mourning, and a mourning into salvation. Do you see that? You've done everything opposite of what a king should do. How? And and you you've done this against the people who actually love you, who risk their lives to save you. This is a complete abandonment of what it means to be a king. And in verse six, he highlights uh, Joab highlights this with two proofs. First proof is a distorted loyalty. A distorted loyalty. By loving those who hate you and hating those who love you. You have to take them both in tension. You might say, oh, well, we're supposed to love our enemies, right? Or we're supposed to love those who hate us. True. But what is David doing? He's not just loving those who hate him. He's also what? Hating those who love you. He's totally distorting the nature of loyalty. His loyalty are to those that actually would undermine the entire kingdom and his disloyalty are to those who what? Would support him. It's completely backwards. A king should not distort loyalty. But even more than that, and more fundamentally than that, how do we know this? For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom was alive and all of us were dead, it says you would be well pleased. This is actually the literal Hebrew translations. It would be the right thing in your eyes. This is a perversion of justice. Perversion of justice. A king who does not know what is right and what is wrong is no king at all. It would be the upright thing to do. It's not just that it would please David emotionally. That's not what Joab's saying. Joab is saying, you would rule that that was the right thing to do. How could you? And this is what Joab slams David even more. If you don't change, you will no longer have a what? You'll no longer have a kingdom. Remember what we said before? And I'll try to repeat this toward the end again. David is not the real king or what establishes David as real king is personal integrity, then what? Military dominance, and then what? Political unification. Now what do we have here? No pers- He's a failure, and then what? He ha- He's not controlling the military. Joab is in control of more of the military. And now what? Joab is telling him, if you don't get your act together, what? You lose your kingdom. You're gone, David. There is no po- political pull you have anymore. And now everything worse than everything you experienced all the way up to this point. Joab remembers all of David's mistakes, just like we remember it. But God always had what? Bailed him out every single time. Joab says, you don't have that luxury anymore. You're under wrath. You're under judgment. And so you think all those bad things that you barely averted, they're all going to come back against you. And so the king arose and he goes to the people at the gate to hopefully show his appreciation of them. Next page. <coughs> we have to blitz through this kind of quickly, but let me just show you here. The, the entire section ends with two proofs of a lack of unity. Remember what I just said. Personal integrity, military dominance, and political unification. This section ends with the complete disillusion of political unification. David is not the king anymore. He doesn't have the political pool. And so, everyone's arguing at first to put David back on the throne, which is kind of strange if you think about it. Well, if you're all saying the same thing, then what's the argument? Unless people are What? not saying the same thing and that other people are trying to convince other people to put him on the throne. Does that make sense? In a positive way, there is no unity. There is no unity. And here's what David has to do. He has to send Zadok and Abiathar back to the tribe of... Read it for yourself. Tribe of... Judah. Judah, To bring them back to himself. Um... Why is that strange? Compare and contrast with what happened before. Judah automatically comes to David's side. Now he has to make special amends. And he even has to do what? He promotes Amasa. Do you guys remember who Amasa is? He's the general for Absalom. He promotes Amasa as the new general over Joab. (coughs) Obviously, there's some historical things going on there, like he doesn't like Joab killing so he demotes Joab, puts Amas over the place. But do you understand, this is a suicidally bad move. You don't put the general of the people that try to kill you as your top general. It's like, you know, George Bush says, I got a good vice president. His name is Saddam. You know, it's like, what? You know, like, are you crazy? That's what David has just done. You know? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But he has to do crazy things like that, even foolish things like that, to get Judah back on his side. Does he have political pull anymore? No way. And as this is going on, and as they're returning across, several characters come back and show their head. Shimei, Ziba, and the tribe of Benjamin. Why? 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 What does Shimi do during the during David's wilderness wandering? Threw stones at him. What did Zeba do? Tricks him. Do you see what they're all doing? They're backpedaling. Oh no, David's gonna find us out. We're dead. So they all try to they all help here, David, we'll carry your stuff over the river Jordan. You know, they're all helping him get over. And Shimi says, Please don't kill me. And what David what should have David done as a good king? You disobey me, you die. I'm the right king. But Shimi and Zibar are with what tribe? The tribe of Benjamin. And I've got to bring them back in. So what do I do? Instead of showing what ought to have been done according to the law, I'll just show mercy. Even though this guy is a total liability against the kingdom and so he brings them in. And Abishai is like, "We well, shouldn't we lop off his head? And David just gets mad and loses it. Why? Because Abishai and Joab are actually saying the right thing. And David doesn't want to hear it. Because he has to do whatever it takes to get back each individual tribe. Do you see that? He doesn't have the political pull anymore. Next page. Then he meets Mephibosheth because Ziba is also a what? A liar. And he's there. And Mephibosheth has nothing. He, he's... Unkept, His feet are unkept. He's, he's not done any personal hygiene. He's a mess. And the king says, why didn't you go? And Mephibosheth answers what? I was tricked. I couldn't do anything. It's exactly what, I, what we postulated before. If Ziba leaves him, he can't chase after the guy. He's lame in both feet. And so Mephibosheth gives this passionate response, this passionate response of loyalty to the king. You can do whatever you want to me. You've been more than good to me. You've been good to my father's household. I won't complain. Whatever is right in your eyes, you can do it. And, and now the king has a problem, right? The king has a problem. Because who is he trying to win over? The tribe of Benjamin. So if he kicks Ziba out, and Zeba as the tribe of Benjamin, has what? profited him, then he's not going to get the tribe. But what is he supposed to be? He's supposed to be loyal to Mephibosheth. And, and would does you want to be loyal to this guy? This guy so loyal. Do you see what happened? And so what does the king do? We'll do a 50-50. You get half. He gets half. You can both divide the land. And here's Mephibosheth's haunting words. I just care about you, David. I don't even need the land. He can have all of it. And it just shows David's hypocrisy even more. Remember what Joab said? You pervert loyalty. You love the ones who hate you and hate the ones who love you. What do you see right here? That played out again. David is not the real king. He can't pull things together. He doesn't know how to rule. He's completely incompetent. Everyone with me? Next page. The only time that David remotely acts correctly is with Barzillai, the Gileadite. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And so we're going to jump all the way down to verse 40. See, that was easy. Uh, He actually acts relatively okay there. He's trying, what he's trying to do at this time, by the way, and you can put this, jot this down in context and overview, he's trying to reward and judge all those who were with him or against him And he's not really rewarding those people really well, and that can even be kind of played out in Barzillai the Gileadite, and he's definitely not judging people at all, right? And sometimes he's rewarding the people he should be judging, and so this is a perversion of justice and loyalty all at the same time just to win the hearts of man back to him, and it's a disaster. And Israel now, Israel, the rest of the nation of Israel, not just Judah and Benjamin, but the rest of the nation of Israel, is kind of having a a spat with Judah. Hey, are you the only ones that have, a, have a possession over the king? Don't we have possession of the king? And the Judah, Judah, people in Judah are like, well, we're his closest kin. What's, what's your problem? They start to yell at each other. And all of a sudden you realize they're yelling at each other, why? To bring David back. But they're also yelling at each other, what? Because of David. See that? And so David is no longer a unifying person. What does he become? A dividing person. He becomes a dividing person. Do you understand why the nation is going to split Judah-Benjamin and the rest of the ten tribes? Does this all start to make sense? The Davidic dynasty has now become the dividing point, not the unifying point. He is not the man for the job. He is not the man for the job. Next page. This is confirmed by one final tale. One final tale. Sheva, a Benjaminite, arises. If you thought, see, if there were no other coups that took place, if Absalom was the last coup, what could you think? Ah, maybe David, okay, he got some rough spots, but then he came in and the nation lived happily ever after. It just so happens that this is the last story before the appendix, and it's a story of what? Rebellion. Another rebellion that happens. And Sheva says, we have no portion in David. This is in total contrast to what actually the 10 tribes said before. We have 10 portions in David. And now Sheva says, we have no portions in David. And the rest of the 10 tribes say, yeah, that's a good idea. We don't have any portions in David. And they all depart. David, learning from previous mistakes, takes the concubines that Absalom had slept with and puts them under guard. So that no one can get in, no one can get out. Trying to protect his own reputation. And then he says, we need to act right now. Has he learned his lesson from before? Does he know what to do? You have to take the rebellion what? Right now. Time is of the essence. So, once again, you don't have any national unity. Once again, you are going to have military disunity. Because what does the king do? He calls to the new general whose name is Amasa and it says assemble in three days. You have to get the whole army and remember time is critical because you have to take this guy out fast. And what does Amasa do? He delays. Why? Because Amasa his loyalty is still to the rebellion. That's why you don't put an enemy general in charge. And so David turns to Abishai and says, get, to get the men out and go. Who does he not turn to? Joab. Joab. Why? Because he still doesn't trust the guy. Actually, the guy who always does the right thing. But Abishai is smart. And he says, hey, bro, let's go. And so th- then they go together and Joab's men notice verse 7 go out with them and they're assembling around Gibeon and Amasa comes to meet them and Joab is very clever he accidentally drops a dagger picks it up with his left hand which no which no one will notice because most people are what? right handed and says Amasa how's it going? and grabs him close and what? boom executes the guy On one hand, you know, actually, it's a traumatic blow because if you read it, it's pretty graphic. Strikes the belly and all his guts pour out. I mean, he knew exactly how to kill him instantaneously. Well, not instantaneously, but lethally with one shot. Here's what's going on in Joab's mind. Amasa is a traitor. He's committed treason. We can't tolerate this. But unfortunately, the Bible doesn't look well upon assassinations. Uh, even Eglon and Ehud for that matter was not looked upon positively in the book of Judges. But, so there is a tension there, but Joab is completely going for David rather than against David. But do you see here, does David really control his army? Not at all. It's crazy. Yeah, people killing people within the army, but no matter what, and this is kind of funny, God's loving kindness still prevails. Even despite all of this, David can't make good decisions. David can't control a nation. David can't control his military. And this is all at the last minute, and God still pulls for him. And so Joab's young man comes out as Amasa is wallowing in his blood, just there bleeding and gurgling to death, and saying, Come on, if you're for Joab, stand with Joab. And everyone looks at Amasa and says, I don't know about this, right? This is kind of gross. So, so the young men, what do they do? They're okay. You got to remember that um, highways are along the ridge routes, all right, or along cavernous valleys. But this is a, probably along a ridge route. And what do they do? They throw them off the road down the ridge, so that no one sees them, and throws a blanket on top of them and says, "Okay, everyone ready?" And everyone's like, "We're ready. Let's go." And that's all that it takes. It's, it's kind of it's kind of put in there for kind of sick humor, I suppose. And then. <laughs> but there's actually a real reason which is that no one's sure who is right and who is wrong right is joe up right for killing this guy i think so but it's pretty graphic and it's pretty gross so okay just get rid of the stumbling block and let's just move does that make sense the military doesn't have this clear vision and purpose anymore like it did before. It was so easy. Before, you just follow Joab, and whatever Joab says, that's the right thing to do, and that's what we should do. It's no longer. But God still will save the day. They go really far north. Beth Ma'akah, that's like really far north. Um, you see that at the border point between Israel and Lebanon. I mean, that's how far north we're going. Okay? Uh, that's... Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And so this is really far north and that just shows how deep the rebellion has gone and they're now besieging a city. What's the problem now? You waited, they're in a city, and to besiege a city, you're risk. on one hand, you're, what, what does a siege normally d- demand? Time. So you're letting the rebellion what? Increase with time. But if you take drastic action against the city, you're going to what? you're going to do two things. You're going to have to kill a lot of men. We've already seen this before. And two, you're potentially going to start a civil war. Aren't you? Because you're declaring war against one of your own cities. Does that make sense? And so now, not only do we have the Amasa military problem, now we have the siege problem. But God, after all these problems, still redeems. He sends a woman. Isn't that ironic? The woman starts it, the woman ends it. And... She says, I got a solution. You just, need abs- you just need Sheva, right? Yes. So she talks to the wise men of the city. They give him his head and it's all resolved. God's loving kindness wins out. It ends the rebellion quickly, without bloodshed, what we always needed, even though the whole army was totally awry and all the military strategy was gone. God figures out a way to solve the problem. And so we have this tension. David is a failure. He can't do anything right. But in spite of that, what? God's faithfulness wins out. Here's what's funny. At the very end of this, there's this kind of like status update about jobs over the whole army. And here's like all these different people and blah, 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 blah. Remember where we first heard this? I told you to memorize it for a long time ago. At the end of 2 Samuel 8. At the end of 2 Samuel 8, that was recording all the victories David had as a new bearer of the Davidic covenant. Everyone remember that? They went down and they removed all the idols. Remember this? And they killed all the bad guys. And, and so here was this list of all these good men of David's administration who are upholding righteousness and justice. And what is this supposed to show you? This has been totally turned around. This is a laughing stock. This is totally false. Joab's the guy over the whole army. Kinda, if David would ever let him. Does that make sense to everybody? This is just, this is all coming to pieces. And that's exactly the nature of David. He's coming to pieces. He's a failure. But, they're all there because of what? God's loving kindness, which demands what? Hope. Somebody's got to be able to put the pieces back together again. Somebody's got to be able to fulfill God's loving kindness. So, what we need? And what does the Davidic covenant thereby project on the rest of redemptive history? That's for next week.